Good morning. If you're visiting for the first time, especially, I am glad you're here and hope that you'll stick around so that I can greet you and that uh, the other pastors and, and members of the church can greet you as well. Please turn with me to Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Again. Pastor Bailey has been preaching through the book of Matthew for a long time, and uh, we're almost done, but not quite yet. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Some things only make sense when you see the big picture. And these words that we've just read only make sense when you see the big picture. Now, anyone who's been a Christian for any amount of time knows what the church has traditionally called these words, right? This is the, the great commission. This is the command. These are the orders that Jesus Christ has given to his church. The great commission. And unfortunately, we've become so familiar with it that we can't even see these words anymore. We can't really see them. We can't really taste them. We can't really feel them. Um, you know, these are the kinds of words that when we read them or hear them, it, it becomes... Um, peanuts talk, you know, you know how the, the adults in the peanuts comics talk, right? Charlie Brown. Everyone with me? We don't even hear them. We don't really hear them at all because, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Great Commission. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there are things that that are so striking here that are big picture things. And if you don't have these uh, firm grasp on these big picture things, you won't get the Great Commission. Uh, Pastor Bailey has spent a couple of sermons talking about these words of the Great Commission in the bigger context of authority. Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And everything else flows out of that statement. And if you do not understand authority, which, which none of us do because we're modern Americans, or if you reject authority, which all of us do because we're modern Americans, then the Great Commission will, will make no sense to you, or we will bend it and twist it into something that it's not. But there is, there's more big picture stuff behind the Great Commission than just the statement of authority. And there's more big picture stuff that we have to understand before we can zoom into the details of the Great Commission. So there are going to be more sermons on this Great Commission. We haven't even begun to talk about the details yet. All right? Big picture. And uh, here's what I mean. How many of you have heard the term, put your hand up if you've heard the term, the church triumphant. We just sung it in one of the hymns we just sung, that the saints triumphant rise in bright array. All right. How many of you have heard the term, the church militant? Okay. What do those terms mean? And how are they different from one another? Think of the first one, the church triumphant. What does triumphant mean? 
Triumphant means having won a battle. Having been successful, having been victorious in battle. Triumphant. What does the other church or the other term mean, the church militant? Militant means currently engaged in warfare or combat. So what's the difference between those two? What's the difference between the church triumphant and the church militant? Who makes up the church triumphant? The church triumphant is those who have trusted in Jesus Christ alone to save them from God's justice and God's rightful anger against their sin. They've trusted Jesus Christ. They're true Christians, but they've died. They're, they're done fighting. They're in heaven. They're with Jesus. They're not fighting anymore. The church triumphant. Who makes up the church militant? Well, it's those people who are true Christians who have put their faith in Jesus Christ alone to save them from God's wrath against their sins. And yet they're still here. They're still fighting. They're not victorious. They're not triumphant. They're not dead and in heaven. They're here and they're fighting. In other words, the the church triumphant consists of all the true Christians who have died, who are now enjoying the presence of God, who are done with the battles of this life. And the church militant consists of all true Christians who have not yet died and who are still here in this life and who are still fighting the battles of this life. And that big picture is very helpful for us as we live as Christians in this world. It's going to help us think about the Great Commission in a second as well. But that big picture, church triumphant, church militant, is helpful to us as we live in this world because it tells us what to expect. The distinction between the church triumphant and the church militant teaches us to have accurate expectations about about this life. And accurate expectations are vital to living as obedient Christians. Think about this. Your expectations... For what it is normally like to live as a Christian will have a tremendous effect on how you actually live. Your expectations will affect everything. For example, think of this. If you expect that to be a Christian here and now is to have your best life now. If that's your expectation, that's what you think is normal for a Christian then you will be totally unprepared for suffering and trials and losses and temptations and struggles. And you will be left scratching your head when they come. They'll they'll, they'll smack you out of the blue. You won't know what hits you when they come. Not if, but when they come. And you will either, when they come, you will either question the goodness of God because you've been told all of your Christian life that God is good and that the goodness of God means No suffering, no trials, no losses, no temptations, no struggles. So you'll either question the goodness of God. God must not be good. Or you will question the reality of your own faith. I must not be a Christian if I'm experiencing suffering or sickness or pain or temptation or sin. And either way, you will be thrown for a loop. And you will not grow in your obedience. You will become faithless. And faithlessness always leads to disobedience and fruitlessness. Your expectations. What do you expect? What do you think is normal? Or think of another one. Suppose that your expectation for living as a Christian is that Christians don't sin. There are many Christians who believe that once you're a Christian, once you put your faith in Jesus Christ, 
Once you've received the Holy Spirit, you're done sinning. Christians are always victorious over sin, automatically, simply as a result of believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. What happens when you do the inevitable? What happens when you do sin? And not just little low-grade sins, but whoppers. What happens? If your expectation is that Christians never do those kinds of things or think those kinds of things, then you will crash and burn every time you sin. And consequently, you will keep on sinning. It's ironic. It's, it's not what you'd think. But if you think that Christians don't sin, you'll be completely trapped in your sin. Because you'll never be able to face it and deal with it. So expectations are vital They tell you how to make sense of your life. They are the key to deciphering the mess of your life. And if your key is wrong, you know, if your code book is wrong, then, and if your expectations are wrong, then you will come to wrong conclusions about everything. So think again of the church triumphant and the church militant. What we have here really is a reality check in terms of our expectations. What do you really expect? What do you really expect? Do you expect to live as a Christian? Do you expect for your life as a Christian to be nothing but victories? Do you expect to have no suffering, no pain, no disappointment, no fights, no conflicts, no sins, nothing but ease. And you say, yes, but the Bible does talk about victory, right? Romans 8:37. but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. What about that? Isn't that talking about the victorious Christian life? Well, yeah, it is talking about the victorious Christian life, if you want to call it that. But if you have your Bible with you, look with me at the context of those words. I read to you from Romans 8.37. Romans 8.35. Look at me, with me at Romans 8.35. These are, these are some of those that Romans 8.37 is a verse that people use to, to say, victory, nothing but victory, all victory, all triumph, all the time. No conflict, no sin, no hardship, no suffering, no poverty. Well, look at what it says. Romans 8.35 Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We, We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, in what things? In tribulation, in distress, in persecution, in famine, in nakedness, in peril, in sword. Not apart from those things, but in these things. In them. We overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. That overwhelming conquering comes in the midst of those things. It doesn't mean that we don't have them. Or someone might 
raise this verse. What about 2 Corinthians 2.14? Paul says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in what? Triumph in Christ. God always leads us in triumph. We are triumphant over sickness. We are triumphant over poverty. We are triumphant over temptation. God always, Jesus always leads us in triumph. Yes. But the same apostle who wrote those words about triumph also wrote these words. In the same book, same letter, 2 Corinthians 7, 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. Does that fit your understanding of triumph? It fit his understanding of triumph. He's not a schizophrenic. Right? So the same Paul who wrote about Always, Jesus always leading us in triumph wrote those words. He also wrote these words. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 28. He says, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I am more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Does that fit your understanding of triumph? It should. Because again, Paul's not a schizophrenic. The same Paul who wrote about triumph, always triumphing. Also wrote these words, 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And he also wrote these words from Romans 7, 18 and 19. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. What's he talking about? He's talking about sin, temptation. So what kind of triumph is he talking about? When he says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Well, it can't possibly be the kind of triumph that excludes affliction and suffering and danger and persecution and temptation and sin. Because he had all of that and at the same time said... But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. So yeah, the Bible talks about triumph. The Bible talks about victory. The Bible talks about overwhelmingly, overwhelming conquering. Not sure how to say that one. But it also says all these other things, which are normal. And so the question again, what do you expect? Do you, do you expect to fight 
Or do you expect to be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease? Wouldn't that be nice? Your expectations will affect everything. You will live in light of your expectations. And so if your expectations are wrong, if what you expect will be normal for a Christian is wrong, then your life will be wrong. And you will be discontented and bitter and shallow and fruitless as a child of God. If your expectations are wrong. Now, let me say something to you who are here and who are not Christians and who have not bowed your knee to Jesus Christ as your King and your Savior. Because up to this point, I've been talking to people who are Christians. But what does all this have to do with you? What about expectations for you? What about your expectations? What are your expectations for life now and for life after death? Well, you may be fairly well off. You're an American. And you may be fairly well off. And so you think life is good. And you expect to enjoy life here and now and to do what you want to do and to live to a ripe old age, having had a a rich and meaningful life. And then, depending on your particular brand of philosophy or religion, you expect to die and to be reincarnated. Or you expect to die and become one with divine mind. Or you expect to die and pass on to some vague, pleasant spiritual existence. Or maybe you simply expect to die and cease to exist altogether. You're just done. Or maybe you haven't had a good life here and now. Maybe you've suffered in this life. Maybe you have been... Um, abused, you've suffered abuse from an evil man who used you wickedly, or you've suffered from a father who abandoned you, or from a mother who ignored you, or you've suffered consequences of the sins of your family from generations. Alcoholism, drugs, foolishness of all sorts. And you don't think life is good, and you don't expect to live a good long life. Your only hope is to find some kind of peace in this life. Maybe by meeting the right person, getting the right job, winning the lottery, you know, having the weekend come around again. Whatever, anything to save you from the monotony, anything to dull the pain. And when you die, maybe you don't expect much at all. Maybe you expect heaven. Maybe... You expect heaven, and heaven in your mind is having everything you want that is good and pleasant and having none of the things that have made this life hellish for you. I want to warn all of you who think any of those things. There is only one expectation that you should have. And it's given to you in Hebrews, in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, Verses 26 and 27, where he says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice of sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. 
So the only thing you can realistically look forward to is a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. But you say, but that's not talking about me because I don't have a knowledge of that truth. I don't believe what you're saying. But you have, you have heard the truth just now. You've heard it. And deep down you know that it really is true. That's why you've avoided Jesus Christ for so long. You know there's a God in heaven who made you. You know that you've rebelled against Him. You know He is rightfully angry with you for your sin. You know that you will have to face Him, and you know that you will have to face His judgment. And you think that you can make it all go away just by trying real hard to ignore it. But you can't ignore it. Because it shouts at you. All the time. And so I urge you, come to Jesus Christ and submit to Him and trust Him and love Him. And you will find Him to be a willing and able and merciful Savior for you. And then instead of the expectation of certain fiery judgment, you will have the certain expectation of hope. And then these words will be true of you. What Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 3-5, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused you to be born again to a living hope. You can be born again to a living hope. A hope that's alive and, and not dead and dry and wishful thinking, but a hope that's living. You've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Come to Jesus Christ and find all of that. That's a solid expectation that's real, that's true, and that will not disappoint you. Now let's come back around. Come back around again to those terms, the church triumphant and the church militant. That word militant scares us, doesn't it? Why? Because this is how the term militant is defined in the dictionary. Militant. Combative and aggressive in support of a political or social cause and typically favoring extreme, violent, or confrontational methods. As in, and here's the, you know, the, the context sentence, right? Use the word in context. As in, an uprising by militant Islamic fundamentalists. So when was the last time you actually heard People talking about the church militant. It's probably been a long time. Because today the term militant has become a dirty, dangerous word. It's, it conjures up images of terrorists, especially after the shooting of an abortionist. Militant. We don't want to be thought of as militant. So if we don't like the term militant, what other words would work? Well, here, let me give you some suggestions. 
Here's what you get from the from the uh, thesaurus as synonyms for militant. And here they are in alphabetical order. All right. You tell me, think if, if any of these would help. Um, synonym for militant, active. Well, that's just kind of boring, isn't it? Assertive. Bellicose. Belligerent. That'll never do. Uh, combating. Contending. Now, all of you should be thinking contending. Yeah, yeah, that's actually a biblical word, isn't it? Jude 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you, what? Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So, instead of the church militant, we could call it the church contending. Let me keep reading here in this list. Uh, contentious. Now well, that won't work. <laughs> Embattled. Yeah, fighting. Are all of you thinking? That's a biblical word too, isn't it? First Timothy 6.12 Fight the good fight of faith. Alright, so that's good. Fight. So we could talk about the church fighting. <laughs> Probably won't work, actually. Uh, okay, here's a good one. You, you young men will like this one. Gladiatorial. I can see it now. In arms. Martial. Militaristic. Military. Offensive. Pugnacious. Pushy. <laughs> uh, quarrelsome. No, no, we can't be quarrelsome. Scrappy. I kind of like scrappy. <laughs> Self-assertive. Truculent. For the educated among us. Up in arms. Vigorous. Warlike. Warring. Last on the list is zealous. Now, that's another biblical word too, isn't it? Titus 2.14. Christ Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So instead of the church militant, we could be the church zealous. Now, do any of those really work any better? I mean, maybe. But no matter what we call it, the church militant, the church contending, the church fighting, the church zealous, whatever. Whatever you call it. They all point to a biblical truth. And they point to biblical truth that we have lost. Completely gone, completely gone from our mindset as to what the church should be and about what the Christian life should be. But we must regain that truth. If we're going to, have, if we're going to understand the Christian life in general and the Great Commission in particular. Okay, so now let's look at it again. Look at these words, those words that aren't there. From Matthew 28, 18, 18 to 20. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. All right? And all you heard when I read that was what? Wah, 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 wah. Right? Now look at them. 
And think of these words as if you were standing there when Jesus said them the first time. You're his disciples. You know that he's been killed. You know that he's been raised from the dead. He's spent 40 days talking to you about the kingdom of God and what the Bible actually means and and what's going to happen next. And he's standing here. He's ready to go back to his father up into the clouds. And this is the last thing he says to you. And think about how you would hear these words. What is he actually claiming? He is claiming absolute and universal authority. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. You've heard that a million times, so it means nothing to you. Think about what it would meant to you the first time you heard that. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So who is he claiming to be? He is claiming to be the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, the one, the high king of heaven, as we've sung about, the one who has all authority over not just the earth, but the heaven, universal authority. And so he is claiming the universe, all heaven and all earth as his territory. He says, it is mine. It's all mine. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It's mine. And then what does he do? He commands his troops to take it. Do you see it? He commands his troops to take it. He commands his troops to go, to advance, to go on the offensive, to move out into the whole world, all the nations. It's mine, Jesus says, go and and take it. And the gates of hell won't even prevail against this onslaught of the church. What do we do? What do we really do? We hide. And we tremble. And we ask for permission. If you please. What's the goal of this offensive? The goal of this offensive is what? Clearly, the goal of this offensive, this commission, this command, is what? It is worldwide domination. (laughs) It is. How can you say it's not? It is, isn't it? Of course it is. All authority in heaven on earth is mine. Go to all the nations. Take them. Make them mine. These are very militant words, aren't they? Now, Jesus is not talking about the kind of militancy that we're all so nervous about. (laughs) He is not talking about swords and bombs and guns. Remember what Jesus said to Pontius Pilate in John 18, 36. He's standing before Pontius Pilate, the earthly king, who is judging him and is about to sentence him to death. And he says, you know, you're about to be sentenced to death for being a king, so what do you have to say about that, Jesus? And Jesus says, yes, I'm a king, but... He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting. It's not a matter of not fighting. It's just, it's just, you know, that's not the kind of fight we're in. If that were the kind of fight we're in, believe me, my servants would fight, he says. 
and they would fight so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. So what kind of militancy is legitimate and essential for you as a Christian and for us as a church? Three things. Number one, there's a fighting against our own sin and lusts and desires. The Bible's filled with this kind of thing. Romans 7:22. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. There's a war going on in here. Galatians 5, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. 1 Peter 2, 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. There's a war going on. It's going on inside of you. There's another kind of fighting. There's a fighting against spiritual forces of wickedness, the devil and his demons. James 4, 7. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist him. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Firm in the faith. You have an enemy. It's you and it's the devil. And there's war, and you must fight it. There's another kind of fighting. It's the fighting against the world. All the ungodliness that arrays itself in opposition to the rightful reign of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. 2 Corinthians 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That militancy is the militancy of the Great Commission. Going out, not with weapons like swords and bombs and guns, but with arguments. It is a militancy that does not use what he calls the weapons of the flesh. But it's a militancy that uses spiritual weapons, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So the weapons of our warfare are words. Which is why we must never allow the government or the university or anyone to tell us what we can and cannot say. Because all we have is words. Words of warning and judgment, words that discriminate between light and darkness, words of promise and hope and good news. So is your basic big picture understanding of your life as a Christian, does it have at its heart a fight? A fight against yourself, a fight against the devil, a fight against the world as you advance with the gospel into Jesus' rightful kingdom. If not, then most of the Bible will make no sense for you. Because the Bible is a word of encouragement and promise and comfort and command to soldiers. Now, let me end with this. What about the promises of triumph and victory? They're all through the Bible. What about all these promises of triumph and victory? What are they for? If they're not for here, what are they for? 
God gives us promises of triumph and victory not to make us fat and lazy and passive as we look for our best life now. But he gives us strong promises of triumph and victory to spur us on for the fight. Because the triumph comes after the fight and it comes only to those who fight. Listen to these words, of, these promises of triumph and victory and glory. Jesus, uh, Paul says, Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Not even worthy to be compared. There's sufferings now, yes. There's suffering, yes. It's a fight, yes. There's suffering, but there's glory to be revealed. And it's great glory in the sufferings, no matter how bad they are. You've heard what Paul's were. None of us have even begun to suffer anything like that. The sufferings that any of us face, the suffering is the greatest thing you can imagine. Not even worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond our comparison, all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. So God gives us wonderful promises of triumph. Wonderful promises of glory. Wonderful promises of victory. But why? To spur us on in the fight. If your life is is nothing but a life of ease, then these, these promises don't really get you, do they? They're not all that sweet. What's the use of them? If there's no fight. So what happens if we don't have this big picture? What happens if we lose sight of the church militant and only see the church triumph? And if we only think of these things as your best life now? Well, if that's what you think, then you'll stop fighting because you don't think fighting is normal. What happens if you do the opposite? What happens if we lose sight of the church triumphant in the middle of the fight? All we see is the pain, the the hardship, the suffering, the struggle, the temptation, the the devil. And that's all you see and you don't see the church triumphant. What will happen then? Well, you'll stop fighting. Because we we don't think we will ever win. And we lose heart. But God has told us both things. And when we keep both in view, when we embrace the reality of the church militant and keep an eye fixed on the church triumphant, then we can set our jaw. We can strengthen our weak knees. We can fight the fight with faith and hope and courage and and vigor. Which is really just another way of saying that we can live as Christians. That's all. We can just live as Christians. Fighting now, hoping, getting strength through the fight, through the hope. Let's pray.